For part two of today's morning show, we're going to be hearing from the great singer Brian Stokes Mitchell, who is going to be performing this Friday evening with the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, an evening with Brian Stokes Mitchell at Bradley Symphony Center. In honor of that occasion, I'm replaying a conversation from some years ago when Brian Stokes Mitchell came to sing here in southeastern Wisconsin. Here is that conversation, which begins actually with an excerpt from one of his most memorable performances on Broadway in the title role of The Man of La Mancha. Hear me now, thou bleak and unbearable world. Thou art base and debauched as can be. And the knight with his banners all bravely unfurled now hurls down his gauntlet to thee. I am I, Don Quixote, the Lord of La Mancha. My destiny calls and I go. And the wild winds of fortune will carry me onward. And that magnificent voice and uh, unmistakable artistry belong to Brian Stokes Mitchell. Brian Stokes Mitchell, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Greg, thank you. It's great being with you again. Thanks for having me. It's just great to talk to somebody who is so renowned, and uh, uh, we have lots to talk about. I believe when we talked last, we did not talk very much about your childhood. And as I read up a bit more about you, it it turns out that you had quite an interesting childhood, uncommon (laughs) in that you, if I understand correctly, grew up uh, on military bases because your father, who I think was a civilian, uh, did work for the U.S. Navy. Tell us about this this aspect of your childhood and and the significance of it in terms of the ways in which that kind of childhood maybe shaped who you are. Yeah, great questions. Uh, thank you. Um, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, I think when you're a kid and up until maybe your 20s, you think, oh, everybody has the same life, and you don't realize that your childhood or your everybody's life is, is very unique. And mine certainly uh, was as well. Uh, my father, as you said, was a civilian working for the Navy. I was born in Seattle when we were six. We moved down to, to San Diego, but only for nine months. Then um, he got uh, um, transferred to Guam. So uh, when I was six years old, we lived in Guam for two years. And then after that, we moved to Subic Bay in the Philippines, and I lived there for six years. So I didn't move back to the United States until I was about 14 years old, going into the uh, ninth grade. And um, it was a it was a really great place and a, a beautiful place. It's kind of like small town America growing up on a Navy base, except for you've got a jungle in your backyard and monkeys coming down and poisonous <laughs> snakes in your house and, and things like that. I was a Boy Scout there and I learned to make rice cookers and canteens with bamboo and all kinds of interesting things. I went on the Bataan Death March which was a 50-mile hike that happened, uh, you know, it was uh, commemorating the death march from um, uh, World War II uh, as well. So I had lots of really interesting experiences. And on reflection, I realized that it prepared me perfectly 
for the life that I have now, um, because as a performer, as an actor, particularly uh, on Broadway, but also in film and television as well, you get very close with a bunch of people very quickly. They become your family. You see them at their best. You see them at their worst. And then at some point, it's all over, and you're gone, and those people are gone, and you may or may not ever see them again. And that was very much what my childhood was like with people coming in from different parts of the United States um, to the, the Navy bases. And um, some of them I have seen and kept up with, and most of them I have not. So um, so I guess I had to be an actor. <laughs> that, that and being born on Halloween which is, you know, the, the day people dress up and pretend to be other people. Um, what else could I have done with my life? <laughs> right. Uh, for as fascinating as that life was, uh, you probably didn't have a whole lot of opportunity for, I don't know, piano lessons and summer plays and that sort of thing. That I mean, opportunities that would be more sort of easily available for, for somebody living a, a, a more ordinary childhood. Uh, can I assume that, that uh, your, your love of, for instance, theater and music came a little bit later once you had settled down back in the United States? Well, uh, yes, actually, the, the, the deep part of it, I would say, did. But my brother George, who's uh, been a professional costume designer now all of his life, he was the first thespian in the family and started that actually in the Philippines. Huh. Um, uh, so uh, I was exposed uh, actually to quite a bit of theater uh, through the USO. Um, and it was interesting because when I was in my, my mid-20s, I actually uh, did a USO tour. I've done two USO tours, and I went back to Subic Bay in the Philippines and, which had not changed at all. They were still one light on the entire base. And, um, and I went back and um, I performed at the Station Theater, which is where I had seen probably, oh, 50 USO shows. And I remember the very first musical I saw was A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, which was Stephen Sondheim's show, of course. And I thought it was one of the funniest things that I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, I later found out that one of the cast members was Jeffrey Tambor in, in that show. Somebody sent me a picture of the cast that was from that, that company. Um, and my brother George, because of his interest in, in uh, theater, he was acting and doing community theater there and was kind of the high school star and the high school class president and every, everything as well. He, I'm the youngest, and he is the oldest boy in the family. Um, because of that, I was exposed through our stereo to all of these different um, – music uh, musical theater composers and he particularly loved Stephen Sondheim uh, so I heard a lot of his uh, work when I was was younger so um, and 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 the music part of it actually started on Guam um, my parents say that I asked for an organ I wanted to play the organ I don't remember that or why um, but they ended up getting me a fan organ and immediately I was obsessed with the instrument and I sat down with it and um, and I and just I would sit with it for hours and play with it and play with the notes and the tones. And I was fascinated by the way certain combinations of my fingers on the keys would, would not only sound, but more so would make me feel. Um, and I think that was my first connection of how music can connect you to your emotions and give you joy and give you sadness and give you all of these different things through this kind of alchemy of, of sound. Hmm. So when you were reaching, for instance, high school, uh, it sounds like you were already very intent on a professional career uh, in music or, or theater or both. Uh, 
was was that kind of a, a war within yourself in terms of where you wanted to focus your passions? No, actually, not so much um, because uh, music was always my place in my in the family. Uh, my uh, next oldest brother, John, was also involved in theater, uh, and my sister Lorna, who is the oldest of of all the kids, she was the first musician in the family. Um, so what happened was when we moved back to the United States, all of a sudden I found myself in a high school. My brother George was graduated. My sister was uh, out of the house at that point. She, she was uh, the oldest, as I said. And um, my brother um, John was in a high school. And they asked me, do you want to take chorus or band or drama? And I was so tired of taking chorus and band because that's what I took every year. And I thought, well, there's no more fraternal competition. Let me try drama. And I took my first acting class in ninth grade in Kathleen Lund's ninth grade class. And uh, the very first scene I ever did was, uh, and I, this occurred to me much later, was Good Morrow, Kate, for that's your name, I hear, which was, of course, from The Taming of the Shrew. And that later occurred to me when I was sitting in, a th- in the theater at the Martin Beck Theater, uh, after, right after I had won my Tony, and a bunch of young people came in, and they were doing scenes uh, from, uh, from The Taming of the Shrew. And I saw some young 14-year-old young man come in and do that scene, and it hit me. Oh, my God, that was the very first scene I ever did in acting class. And here I am now sitting in a Broadway theater, um, having just won a Tony Award for that, just the uh, the amazing you know circles that life makes. <laughs> but when I was in San Diego, my father worked at that time for uh, he retired from the Navy and ended up working for Scripps Institute of Oceanography. And I had this great fascination, as I still do, with science and particularly marine biology. So I was thinking of being a marine biologist, but still, every day I was playing the, the piano or the organ. I was, I was very obsessed by it, and I was starting to teach myself orchestration and, um, and arranging as well. And, um, and I had also grown up kind of with a tape recorder, a studio in my house, because my father was an electronics engineer, so we would always get the old tape recorder and uh, you know when he upgraded. And my brother John and I used to play for hours uh, recording and making uh, radio shows and and making music on these things so um it was kind of a natural extension um but i really wasn't thinking about it professionally um uh until uh, probably uh, around the 11th or 12th grade i started actually working professionally in san diego in the theater at the old globe and the san diego um uh civic light opera and also i was in a group called the bright side which was like the young americans which traveled every place performing and um that was my those were my jobs actually <laughs> then um and i i think that's when i i realized oh maybe i have have something here this is, maybe <laughs> there's some kind of you know a promising future maybe not who knows of course the world now knows you for uh the amazing performances that you have delivered particularly uh on the broadway stage and in, a, in an array of marvelous shows but your very first splash uh, actually, in, I mean, in terms of nationwide recognition, came with your uh, delightful work on a little TV show called Trapper John M.D. And I yeah. should and I should mention before I forget, you're actually the second member of that cast that I have interviewed on this program. More oh than God. more than 30 years ago, I interviewed Charles Siebert 
because he was born and raised right here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where our radio station is located. And, you know what? Uh, I forgot about that. Charlie Siebert and I still keep in touch. I just love him. I, I learned so much from him during uh, Trapper John, and I'm sure I stole a lot from him as well because he had incredible comedic uh, technique. And I forgot that he was from Kenosha. My wife, by the way, I think we might have talked about, is from Milwaukee. So I spent lots of time in, in Wisconsin. I have these, uh, these constant connections uh, uh, up there, which is, which is really nice. So that, that's fantastic. But Great. Trapper John kind of put me on the, the national map. Um, but it was interesting. People didn't realize that I was uh, musical uh, on that show. And I kind of kept that hidden because I was raised in musical theater and I always sang. But I, I actually made a conscious choice not to sing uh, on the show, uh, even if they asked me or even make any overtures that I would like to do that. Because I kind of wanted to keep some some secrets and some things, you know, <laughs> that I could reveal later. What I did do on that show, which was wonderful, I started studying through UCLA film scoring, uh, conducting orchestration uh, and um, arranging, and I ended up uh, scoring a number of the shows on Trapper John because it's something that I've always been fascinated with. And um, so that was my first opportunity to do that. And it was just a magical time in my life because um, the uh, producers, Don Brinkley and Frank, Lick Frank Glicksman, loved Broadway people. So we had lots of Broadway uh, folks that I had been listening to on these albums from my childhood coming into my living room, so to speak. And I got to meet, you know, and talk to them, Roddy McDowell and Rita Moreno and and uh, uh, Celeste Holm and all kinds of other um, um, stars as well. So it was a really great learning experience for me. Wow. I'm so glad you, you said that because one of my questions was going to be something to the effect that uh, how in the world did you go on to do what you did on Broadway given the fact that, that I mean, this, this, what, what you did on this television show, which was a, you know, a, 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 a rather lighthearted, lovely show, certainly not a heavy drama uh yeah. and and your and your character specifically uh, uh was was not uh, you know given to heavy dramatic moments watching that we would never imagine what you would go on to do uh and i would never have imagined any kind of connection it's like two different careers almost two different lives yeah that's why i do call that it was like a lifetime ago but i always had it in my head that um, that I, I wanted to do theater, and it's interesting because I was making observations while I was doing the show, and one of the things that I did observe was from other friends and people that had gotten off of television shows at the time that they couldn't get arrested after after that. One of the downsides of being on a television series, especially one that runs a long time, is that people see you every every week. You're in their living room, sometimes more than that if they're reruns, and they become kind of weary, and they think they know you and know everything that you do. And I knew I had some surprises in my back pocket, but I, after Trapper John, I could hardly get arrested because everybody wanted the new shiny toy, of course, and I wasn't that anymore. So I ended up going into voiceover work. I went into a lot of animated voiceover work, which I still do. And um, and then I thought, you know what, I, I want to do theater again. And there was an opportunity at the Pasadena Playhouse to get into a show uh, called Mail, M-A-I-L, um, that ended up being a big hit there. I, I ended up getting the role, and that was my first Broadway show. That was the show that took me um, uh, to through the Kennedy Center and then on to Broadway. But we only ran two months. But it was my entree, and I won what's called a theater award 
Theater World Award, which is an award that's given every season um, to uh, people making their Broadway debuts, about 20 people. And, um, and I didn't really understand the depth and, and, uh, and uh, wonderful nature of that gift uh, when I received it. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, was, I found out later I was in incredible company. Um, uh, with with that, just about anybody famous that's ever been on Broadway has received that that award, and I was one of the lucky ones to get it. And to this day, it is one of my my favorite awards that I've ever won. Hmm. We're speaking with Brian Stokes Mitchell. Your hallmark uh, in terms of the uh, amazing work you have done on Broadway has been a really interesting mix of of some shows that have been just wall to wall bubbly fun coupled with other works that have been uh, much more wrenching and intense. And I suspect that that's one of the things that makes a, a career on Broadway such a, a rich experience, is the fact that you get to, uh, in a sense, explore and experience uh, such wide variation of emotional life. Absolutely. Um, it, it's one of the things that I've loved the most about it is it's giving me this great opportunity to explore all of these different human beings. Um, and that's kind of what you get to do as a performer. Um, as a child, I remember I, I, I had a term for it, um, but maybe from the time I was six or seven, year old, seven years old, I used to look at people and watch people. And I, I wished I could, my term was blow myself into them. And, and feel what it felt like to be them. Did, did it feel the same to walk for them that it does for me? Do they see colors the same way that I do? Do they hear sounds the same way that I do? You know, what does it feel like to be them? And, of course, I could never do that. But what I realized is much later on in my life, that's what I end up doing as an actor. I kind of blow myself into these different people and these different per- personas and uh, with these different walks of life and points of view. And... Um, it's very eye-opening to be, I think, an artist and particularly a performer um, because, you know, that saying uh, of, of walking a, a thousand miles in someone else's shoes, in a sense, as a performer, you get to do that. Um, you have to fall in love with the person, whoever it is that you're playing, whether they're, you know, a darker kind of uh, uh, soul, like um, in uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman or Jelly's Glass Jam, uh, or even in Ragtime, where Cole House Walker ends up going, or King Headley, the August Wilson play that I did, or whether there's somebody lighter like Fred Graham in Kiss Me Kate, you know, or, or um, Don Quixote uh, in Man of La Mancha. Um, but you get to explore all of these different personas, and I think it's it's really wonderful because um, it it allows uh, anybody, and, and and you don't even have to do this professionally. You can do this in your community theater, in your high school. It's why I think arts are so important in school, particularly, is it allows people to see something greater than themselves, to realize there's more than themselves. And it gives people a great sense of empathy and understanding. And um, you kind of embrace your life and you understand how you're different, how you're the same uh, as everybody else and and kind of what connects us all. And that that continues to be what I love to do, not only with um, films and television and, uh, and Broadway, but also in my concerts as well. I kind of like to um, embody these different characters uh, from of the songs that I'm I'm singing. 
By the way, I wonder what it is, how is it a different experience to, for instance, be a part of something brand new exploding on the scene like Ragtime in 1998 versus bringing to the public a show that they already know like Kiss Me Kate for which you won uh, the Tony or or something like Sweeney Todd or South Pacific when you are in a sense treading in the in the in the shoes of of those who have gone before you in that show in that very role which you are now performing how different are those two experiences or undertakings for you well there there are a lot of differences but a lot of similarities as well um the main difference is, of course, is you're creating something from scratch that nobody has seen before. They may have experienced it in a book or in a film, but especially in a musical, that's a, a very different kind of art form. So you get to define what this character is going to look like, walk like, sound like, um, as opposed to doing something like Kiss Me, Kate of Man of La Mancha. The audience has an idea of what these songs are already, the, the idea of what the show is and what happens with the show. Um, so in that sense, you're trying to rediscover or actually discover new things about the character and about the, the songs. Um, and also make that connection, because this is the most important thing, I think, for an actor, is you have to make a very personal connection to those characters. Um, so even though I listened to the Richard Kiley album a lot when I heard Man of La Mancha, um, and Ezio Pinzo when I uh, was listening to um, uh, South Pacific when I was younger. And I stole a lot from those guys, by the way, uh, in their technique because they're big baritones as well. Um, but uh, when you finally get a hold of those roles to play on your own, you have to find a personal connection. What makes me respond to this person? What, what would I do in that situation? And also I made a very conscious effort when I approached the song The Impossible Dream, for instance, um, to do it differently because that song is one of the most beloved songs in the world. Um, Mitch Lee, who wrote the music for it, told me that when he goes to Germany or when he went to Germany, he's since passed away um, and performed that song. The Germans would come up to him after the show and say, oh, thank you for writing The Impossible Dream. That's so German. And he'd go to Japan and the Japanese would say, oh, thank you for writing The Impossible Dream. It's such a Japanese song. And it's a, <laughs> The hallmark of a great song is a song that everybody can relate to like that. And so what I wanted to do is discover what's going to be different for me in that song. And I decided to tread in what I call the spaces of the material, as opposed to Richard Kiley saying these long, dream, the impossible dream, you know, these long phrases. And I thought, let me pull that apart a little bit, because that song is more, for me, a question and answer. You know, the question is, uh, to dream what? Answer, the impossible dream. To fight who? The unbeatable foe. So there was this implied question in the spaces, and I thought, let me put a little space in there. And it kind of allowed me to rediscover and re-invent re, um, um, the, the song. So that's what you try to do when you're, when you're doing um, uh, a new role as well, I think. I love that. What is it like for you to step on the concert stage where you are, uh, in a sense, shorn of the trappings of a full-staged production. No set, no costumes, and in most cases, no uh, castmates. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and and in, in what way is that uh, 
an experience that uh, feels like less than something and maybe at the same time more than something. Yeah, um, I have to say, I think if I had to pick one thing to do of all the things that I've done, television, film, voiceovers, all of that, Broadway, um, it, it would probably be concerts. It's what I, I love the best. Yeah, I, it almost feels like everything that I've ever done and been trained to do feeds best into the concert world. Um, and I love it because, for one thing, it's always different. Um, every audience is different. Sometimes I do a concert with an orchestra, sometimes like I'm doing with the Chicago Philharmonic, a fantastic orchestra, by the way. I'm so looking forward to working with them again or playing with them again, as I like <laughs> to say. Um, Sometimes it's with a jazz band. Sometimes it's with a trio. You know, sometimes it's just with a solo piano. And it's always different. And every audience is different. And it's one of the things that I love about the theater. But unlike the theater where you're doing eight shows a week, it's the same show every time. And you, you're exploring the spaces. I can change the show up as much as I want. I can throw in different songs. I'm working on a new album now called Plays With Music that's going to be released in uh, this, this fall. And so I, I'm introducing many of those songs in the concert as well. And um, you have a, a kind of different way to play with it. And because it is just me, I have all kinds of freedom. I can say what I want. If something just pops into my head, if something happened during the day, um, I, you know, I, I like to make storytelling uh, a part of it as well. Because what I want people to be left with, and this is largely in my control when I'm doing a, a concert like this, um, I want them to. I want them to feel happier, more joyful leaving than they did when they came in. For me, the theater in general and the arts in general, but particularly the theater and concerts, uh, for me are kind of like a church. And I feel like a good church. When you go to church, you should leave church feeling much better than you did when you walked in. More <laughs> hopeful, more joyful more excited, more empathetic, more connected, more yourself, more curious, more all of those things. And that's one of the things that I, I, I try to connect people with, because I'm, I like to connect with those things. And I think sometimes uh, for those that want to go there with you, uh, when you bring that energy on, onto the stage, it's kind of a contagious energy <laughs> that, that hits the audience as well. And it's, it becomes this wonderful synergistic kind of energy exchange that happens between the audience and not only me, but the orchestra and the conductor and the people on stage as well. Um, and it's just a, it's a wonderful, um, it, it's, it's a wonderful way to, to make a living. I feel like the, <laughs> the luckiest human being in the world. Right. Renowned baritone Brian Stokes Mitchell performs this Friday night with the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. To finish out the morning show today, here he is in an excerpt from a memorable concert performance of Rodgers and Hammerstein's South Pacific, opposite Reba McIntyre, singing the great anthem, Some Enchanted Evening. Even if it seems foolish to be so quick, I know it is only two weeks, a dinner given at your officer's club. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. That is the way things happen sometimes, isn't it, Nelly? Yes, it is, Emil. Some enchanted evening, you may see a stranger 
Once you have found her, never. 